You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, we have an amazing guest on, Colin. I had the opportunity to meet Colin a few weeks back and talk everything real estate, and really, his story resonated with me. I think most of our listeners know that I'm a sales professional, and one of the benefits of being a sales professional is really getting those commission checks and being able to kind of control your own uh, destiny with your salary there. However, one of the downsides is that it's a very lumpy business and your money is not guaranteed. I'll let Colin dig into his story and why I really related to him, um, but he's going to help us understand how positive cash flow producing real estate can really help uh, even out some of those booms and busts. But with that, Colin, welcome to the show. Hey, appreciate it, Matt. Glad to be here. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here, so I'm just going to go straight into it. What's your favorite ice cream? Yeah, so um, I live a block away from a place called Bonnie Bray Ice Cream here in Denver, and they have a flavor called Cappuccino Crunch that's incredible. Um, it's more more complex. You know, I'm fine with just chocolate or vanilla too, but uh, you know, that one's that one's pretty good. It's one to write home about. Does it have caffeine in it? I don't know. I don't think so. Because that would be the breakfast of champions right there. Get you a scoop of <laughs> your coffee. No better way to start the day there. Exactly. Exactly. So tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do? Yeah, so uh, I am a petroleum engineer by degree, um, which means, you know, I work in the oil and gas industry. And that's something that you mentioned earlier, you know, in sales, we do kind of have something in common uh, with the oil and gas industry. And that is, if you're not familiar with the industry itself, it's very cyclical in nature. Um, it's very boom and bust. In fact, there's a there's an old saying. It's called the oilman's prayer, and it says, um, you know, Lord, give me one more oil boom, and I promise I won't screw this one up. And you know, it's a pretty fitting quote to what we're finding ourselves in today. Where you know, over the summer, I don't know if you if you paid attention, oil prices actually went negative for a time. Um, they hovered around 12 to $13, which quite frankly is not sustainable. Um, there's a lot of people losing their jobs right now. Um, unemployment is up, uh, wages are down. And this is something that has happened you know, throughout time in the oil and gas industry. It's nothing new, um, but we don't seem to, to learn from it, right? So that's why I got started in real estate. Um, I really found it as you know, it checked all the boxes for what I would need to really rise above and stop living from boom to bust and start building wealth um, based on something that isn't, you know, tied back to commodity prices. Yeah, 100%. I mean, you mentioned it there that oil went negative for our listeners out there that don't know what that doesn't know what that means. That means that there were oil tankers circling Houston trying to give away their oil and pay someone to take it off because they couldn't uh, find a place to store it, which is I mean, of all the crazy things that's happened in 2020 from a financial standpoint, that definitely is probably one of the biggest financial news in the history. So um, I can relate to that story there. But tell us how your real estate journey began. What was your first deal? Um, so, I mean, my real estate journey began kind of out of necessity. In 2015, I was laid off. And, um, you know, I knew that there would be that time would come, right? I mean, I'm in the oil industry, it's boom or bust. And I knew that I needed to be prepared for that type of downturn. And I thought I was, right? I had, you know, a rainy day fund, um, but the problem was I had it in the wrong investment. So I had it in the stock market. And when I lost my job, okay, now I have no income coming in. So I had to start um, selling those stock investments to keep the lights on and, and pay bills while I had no income coming in. And there's several problems that arise from that. Number one, uh, once you sell that investment, your, um, you know, your initial capital there, your investment is gone. Um, and then also number two, you get hit with pretty heavy capital gains taxes as well. So it's, it's really a double-edged sword. Um, and that's you know, how I discovered real estate because it checked those boxes as far as like, you know, it has cash flow to where each month uh, when times are good in, in the oil industry with my W-2 job, I just direct that cash flow towards reinvesting in real estate and grow my portfolio there. Um, when times are bad, I can switch and direct that uh, cash flow to cover bills and expenses while you know I get back on my feet in the oil and gas industry 
However, I don't have to sell my um, assets in order to, to change, you know, where the cash flow goes. And that's kind of the beauty of it. Um, you know, as far as my first deal goes, I got started in single family investing, kind of like um, most people do that go this route. Uh, and I think that's a combination of a couple factors. Number one, a lot of uh, education out online and, and YouTube and podcasts and everything like that is based on single family. And number two, I think it was just in my comfort zone, right? And, and you know, now that I've come a long way on this journey, I've grown as a person, I've grown as an individual, I realized like, you know, that should have been red flag number one, right? Is it was in my comfort zone to do single family. I should have been like, no, I need to get outside of that, grow and, and do something that would actually challenge me. Um, so my first deal was a, uh, if you're familiar with the Burr method for you uh, bigger pockets fans out there, it's basically buying like, you know, the worst haunted house on a block um, in an area that has decent demographics and, and um, can cash flow and everything like that. And the Burr stands for buy, rehab, refinance, rent, repeat. So, um, you know, I don't know if you want to dive into nitty, the into the numbers on that house, but it ended up being a home run numbers wise, right? Like, so uh, what I paid for the house and what I paid for the um, rehab on that house, I was able to refinance out. I have almost no money in that house invested, um, you know, stuck there, but I have $40,000 in equity on paper and it cash flows about $300 a month. Um, so as far as checking the boxes of a good burr, it was, um, I mean, not a home run, I guess I shouldn't say that, but it was, it was a great, you know, double uh, got me in the game, but it also helped me realize that single family wasn't going to scale to meet my, my goals, which was, you know, to eventually replace my oil and gas income. And in order to do that, I would have to repeat that Burr method about 50 to 60 times. So, you know, looking at the math and, and how long, I mean, it took me two months to do that house. It was a really heavy rehab. That's why I was able to get so much sweat equity out of it and equity on paper. But at the same time, I mean, that was two months that I was fielding calls, you know, throughout all times of the day, interrupting my W-2 job, um, you know, because I was the lone wolf, right? Like I was the only one that could answer the call for my title attorney, for property management, for the contractor doing the rehab and stuff like that. And I was like, man, I don't know if I can do this 50 to 60 more times before getting fired. And, you know, that would be the ultimate irony, right? Like I'm trying to smooth out the ups and downs of my job and I get fired because I'm distracted. So yeah, that's when I made the switch to multifamily. You brought up two points there that I want to double down on. One, you mentioned about the stock market. And while I certainly believe that equities play a portion in people's portfolio, um, usually if you're losing jobs and the economy's going poorly and things like that, the stock market's taking a hit as well. And so what, what I would say is like when March happened in 2020, this is a conversation I was having with someone the other day, um, I saw my equities portfolio take like a 40% dip. And fortunately, I felt very calm during that time period because I had money and cash flow coming in from my rentals to where I didn't necessarily have to sell any stocks if I lost my job or if something came up or anything like that. So I think that's an important thing that I want our listeners to take out of this is that cash flow is king, especially when we're talking about uh, occupations like ours where it's boom and bust. The second thing is I love the burst strategy, right? I've gone through several different burrs. My best deal, I had, I got paid to burr the money out and it still cash flows 450 bucks a month. It was a fantastic, and it's appreciated 30% in the past year and a half. So it was just a bang up deal. But going through the refinance portion of that, I had to send over a gigabyte worth of data. And for those of you that aren't in the technology industry, a gigabyte is about a thousand songs on your iPhone. That's how much complications it took just to refinance that money out. So to your point, if you've got a W-2, it's absolutely a great strategy and it's a strategy, but sometimes it's not the best strategy to maximize your wealth and keep your uh, day job, as they would say. Um, I know you have a podcast that helps a, a lot of oil and gas industry professionals kind of figure out this, how do they uh, uh, smooth out the boom and bust. And one of the most impactful things I've taken from your podcast was this idea of transactional versus equity-based uh, investing in real estate. Can you talk a little bit about that and give us some, our listeners some insight into that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, by my definition, a transactional based real estate investment 
is, uh, you know, fix and flip. Um, if you become a real estate agent and you have to um, sell houses or represent buyers and sellers and everything like that, your pay is based on your ability to transact, um, you know, that transaction, right? So, um, I, you know, when it comes to uh, busy professionals, and especially busy professionals in the oil and gas industry, which is my typical uh, people that I work with and people that I help, um, to me, that's not really a solution to the problem that's at hand, right? The problem at hand is that you need cash flow um, for these black swan events. Like, I'm not saying that there will be another COVID, um, but that gave a lot of people a taste of what it's like to be in the oil and gas industry, right? You see your income dry, dry up overnight, and that should be a red flag to you of like, hey, I need to have something that's not transactional. And what that is in my mind is equity-based, uh, meaning you own a business or real estate that spits off cash flow, um, you know, predictable, steady cash flow um, to where if you stop working, that cash flow keeps going. Whereas transactional-based real estate, you know, your fix and flips and everything like that, it's based on your ability to continue making transactions. It's a second job. And the IRS sees it as a second job, actually. There's no tax benefits there, too. So that was another thing that I really wanted to check the box with real estate was, um, you know, after 10 years in a relatively high-paying job, I was tired of, you know, giving away 30% to Uncle Sam every year, 30% plus. So, um, you know, for me, doing a fix and flip, the IRS sees that as um, ordinary income, and it is taxed as ordinary income, whereas... So the stuff I do with uh, rentals and, and especially multifamily, there's some incredible tax advantages with multifamily, um, you know, to where my initial investment on several, I mean, just for one example, I had one that had a 77% write-off on paper year one of my initial investment. So you, you, you start to, you know, snowball that and combine that and the tax benefits alone um, are, are what makes this so incredible. But I'm kind of digressing there. I mean, the big thing to take home is, with equity-based um, investing, your cash flow and your wealth will continue to generate overnight, whether you're working on it or not. Uh, life gets busy, life gets hectic. You know, if you were out of work when you were building this this business up, and then you go back to work, you really still want that kind of passive income to keep coming. And uh, transactional-based real estate is not going to fit that bill for you. Yeah, I think there's, again, two more points I want to kind of pull out there is like, if you listen to anybody's story in real estate, it's like, oh, I got into real estate and I started wholesaling, which is like finding distressed properties and selling them to real estate investors and making a cut of it. And then they're like, wait a second, maybe I should buy some of these houses and keep them. So they end up keeping them. And then for one reason or another, they all transition into multifamily for a number of different reasons that I want to get into. But um uh, it, it's interesting as you talk through that, that's what went through my mind is like every real estate investor's journey begins with some kind of transactional and then they realize the real money is when you can do some equity-based investing. Um, the second thing I want to pull out of there is you mentioned the tax benefits and I want to talk about that, but have you ever read the book uh, Cashflow Quadrant by Robert Kiyosaki? I'm familiar with the principles. I haven't actually read it. Yeah, I mean, most people know the Rich Dad Poor Dad. I actually think Cashflow Quadrant is by far his best book and probably one of the better financial mindset books out there. I'll summarize his tax statements in, in kind of a, a, a poor way, I guess, is the tax system in America, right, wrong, or indifferent, is not meant to raise revenue. It is meant to incentivize private industry to do what the government doesn't feel like it has the competency or the capability to go do. Um, so it sounds like you, you found a, a niche in multifamily. How did you make the transition from single family to multifamily? Yeah, I mean, long story short, um, I had heard a rumor that if you did five to 10 units at a time, like, you know, a fiveplex or a tenplex, it was about, you know, 20% work, more work maybe than a single family home. So um, and this is this is one thing that you know I've used in my career in oil and gas and has helped me be very successful there and also in real estate as well is if I don't know how to do something, I'm going to be humble and uh, not assume that I know how to do it just because I listened to a podcast or watched a, uh, a video about it. I'm actually going to go talk to people who are who are actually doing that right who are actually successful at what I want to do. Uh, plug into their network and see how I can add value to them. So what I did there was I started talking to people that were doing five to 10 units. And it turned out the rumor was true. They did confirm that. They were like, yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's barely any more work to do five units than it is to do 
one at a time. Um, but then the theme emerged, right? Like they'd be like, yeah, it's, it's definitely not any more work, but I can't wait to sell my five to 10 units and get 20 to 40 units um, because they run more efficiently. So I was like, okay, maybe I just skip that step. I'll just talk to people doing to 20 to 40 units and see where I can plug myself in there and, and get started there. And the same theme emerged. They were like, yeah, 20 to 40 units is great. I'll never do another five to 10 unit or a single family, but I can't wait to get to 85 units and above per complex because all of, then, all of a sudden then like this magical thing happens at 85 units plus, um, you have enough cash flow and a big enough business to support an on-site leasing agent, uh, on-site maintenance as well. So you got to think with a single family house, if something breaks on that, you've got to send a contractor out there, see what sink it is. Uh, he goes to Home Depot, comes back, oops, wrong part, back to Home Depot, back to fix a sink. And we're talking like all day to fix a sink, whereas an 85 unit apartment complex, we've got a, um, you know, a trained maintenance person on staff who can make that plumbing repair before his morning coffee. And it costs us, you know, 15 minutes of his time or whatever. And we have five sinks that are identical because every unit is the same that are sitting on a shelf on the premises, right? So, and then also um, with single family, your property management fees are around 10 to 12% of your gross revenues, whereas uh, these big multifamily buildings, uh, it's closer to like two to, uh, yeah, two to 4%, I think is pretty typical. Um, so, you know, that was the theme that emerged is that I need to get to 85 units and bigger. And um, of course that was like, you know, a big roadblock for me, right? Cause I was like, what am I gonna do? You know, just get on Zillow and put $10 million in a duffel bag and go try and buy a hundred unit complex. Like- Only in Miami. Yeah, I was like, I don't have the funds. I don't have um, the experience to, to bite off something like that. But it, it turned out that I didn't have to. The more I networked, the more I talked to people, it turned out that 85 units and above is no longer like, you know, the lone wolf, one man show. It's very much a team sport. And there is value that you can add to people in that realm. Uh, and I found all this out, you know, through networking and asking questions and everything like that, that you can get a piece of the pie on, you know, 150, 250 units. It may be a small piece of the pie, but these are big pies, right? These are 20, $30 million pies. And um, when you look at it from a, a big picture point of view, it doesn't matter if I own half a percent of the general partnership on a 250 unit building, that still counts as my track record. I can talk to brokers. I speak the language. I have a, you know, a track record based on that no matter how big or small my part, my role was in that, in that building. So um, long story short, that's how I discovered multifamily. Um, I started by passively investing first. Um, so that's another kind of rabbit hole we can go down if you want to. Um, yeah. I mean, I think a key point there is really what you were talking about with like the faucets and the maintenance man and things like that. I mean, just think about how we go grocery shopping, for instance, right? In the 1910s and 1920s, you would go to a butcher shop and then you would go to the bakery to get your bread. And then you would go to the farmer's market to get your vegetables, et cetera. Now we just roll up to an HEB or a Publix or a Kroger or whatever, and it's got it all in one. That's very similar to like a multifamily union. I know um, this year I actually bought a place for like $60,000, uh, a single family unit. And I will be darned if like the day I didn't sign on that, one of my other units had like some minor um, water damage to it. And it wasn't a big deal, right? I mean, it cost me like $5,000 to fix or whatever. So fortunately, you know, I had cash in the bank to cover that and reserves to cover that. So I always have reserves. But I mean, that wiped out the cash flow for that unit for the entire year. Whereas to your point, um, if you have multifamily, like you've got multiple sources of revenue at a single unit to cover those unexpected costs and things like that. So I think we're moving to a world, by the way, and I think Zoom has kind of taught a lot of people this, of you don't need to know everything or be the end all for everything. It's a team sport out there. It's a team sport for countries. It's a team sport for people. It's a team sport for work and collaboration. And multifamily signifies that the most. I do want to talk about how you um, got into passive real estate with multifamily and move, move more towards the general partner side. But you have a six step framework that I thought just like beautifully puts it for anybody out there that's like, 
interested in real estate or doesn't know if they want to do like transactional real estate or get involved into multifamily. So I want to kind of walk through those with you. Um, so step one, you mentioned active versus passive. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so, you know, step zero is deciding that you want to get into um, equity-based investing, right? And then within equity-based investing, and, and here's part of the problem, here's kind of a backstory to this is I've seen so many times people um, decide that they want to get into real estate investing, but then they realize, you know, there's a million ways to get started. And so that's part of the problem is people get this, you know, paralysis by analysis and um, their eyes glaze over, there's too many options and they freeze. And a lot of times they end up not doing anything, right? So, um, you know, step zero of my, is my, of my framework is, you know, make the decision that you want um, equity-based investing. And then from there, there should really only be three options that you should look at. Number one is actively investing in single family. Number two is actively investing in multifamily. And number three is passively investing in multifamily. And I have a six-step framework that, you know, there's six questions and it has an incredible um, ability to, you know, give people clarity and figure out which one of those three uh, options to get started is best suited for their situation and goals. So, um, you know, we can walk through those, those steps. Number one is to decide if you want to be active or passive, where is your time best spent, right? So um, a lot of times, you know, sometimes I'll get on the phone with like a doctor who makes seven figures a year and he wants to learn how to buy, you know, one single family house at a time that's going to cash flow like 300 bucks a door. And, um, you know, I really have to tell him to pump the brakes. I'm like, hey, I love where your head's at, but let's take a step back and think about where is your time better spent? Um, you know, if you have your own practice and you can take that from, uh, you know, low seven figures a year to, you know, 20, 30, 40% growth on that revenue, don't you think that's a better use of your time than 300 bucks a month on, you know, 300 bucks per door per month on single family rentals? And you have the ability to do that. Um, it, you know, you have the ability to still invest in real estate, but it doesn't take any time out of your day. And that is passively investing. So for people out there who are higher net worth, busy professionals, um, typically passively investing is going to be the better use of your time and a better return on your capital. Uh, and you still get to check all those boxes for cash flow, um, tax benefits, and everything from from real estate because you are a partial owner in that uh, in that real estate. Yeah, I mean everybody's dollar or everybody's hour has a dollar associated with it, whether it's tangible or not. So I think you're a hundred percent correct. Make sure that you're leveraging your time in the place where it's most well spent or best and highest use. What would step two be then? How much liquid capital do you have available to invest? Actually, um, we kind of skipped over step one. Sorry. Um, step one is what is your monthly cash flow goal? And that step is really to get you to um, kind of separate out between single family or multifamily. And, and kind of my, um, my rule of thumb here is if your cash flow goals, think of about, you know, in today's terms, $250 per door cash flow on a single family house um, is, you know, kind of the lower end. But, you know, you said you've got a couple that cash flow 400 a door, probably more, um, you know, at about $250 per door, if your monthly goal for real estate cash flow will take 12 to 15 houses, um, you need to start looking at multifamily from the beginning. And it's, it's more scalable, it's more efficient because the thing is to reach your goal, you're gonna have to get more units anyways. And you run into you know, a couple problems. Number one, Fannie and Freddie and banks are only gonna give you 10 uh, conventional loans to buy houses with. So you're gonna run into that problem of you're gonna to have to get creative with your financing after that. Um, number two, again, it comes back to the efficiencies. Once you get up of you know, 15, 20 rentals, single family rentals, if you're managing those yourself, that's a full-time job. Um, you know, things are gonna break, there's gonna be issues. And if you plan on with your cash flow um, needing that many houses, you might as well start out in the most efficient asset class possible. Yeah, I, I want to talk yeah, about that for it. just one second, because I wish somebody would have told me that like a couple of years ago, I just kind of bragged a little bit that one of my best deals I've ever done cash flows 450 bucks a month after expenses reserves and all that kind of stuff. 
I mean, to your point, if I have a $10,000 a month cash flow divided by 400, that's a lot of doors, right? So why wouldn't I go invest and get those doors in one purchase as opposed to a hundred different purchases or whatever? So that's a fantastic point that I want listeners to understand is I don't do single family investing unless I can get $200 a door and 10% back on my money. That's a lot of doors to meet somebody that's a, a high income earner that's usually in like a sales role or an oil gas role. So question number two is uh, how much liquid capital do you have up front available to invest? And the reason that question is there is because um, if you have a lot of liquid capital able to invest, it opens up a lot more doors, right? If you're going to invest with, um, you know, into a typical syndication deal, the minimum investment is typically going to be fifty to one hundred thousand um, dollars, and you don't want to just put all your eggs in one basket, right? You want to have enough for um, multiple investments there. So, uh, question two, really, you know, if you have fifty to a hundred plus thousand um, dollars available that you want to put into real estate. Um, then, you know, you're going to want to put down multifamily as your answer to question two. If you don't have that much liquid capital available, um, definitely, I think you should start in single family because that's a great way to, uh, you know, leverage your net worth and boost your liquidity over the years until you're ready to get into bigger multifamily units. You know, obviously multifamily is going to carry a few more zeros on it. Um, you know, so the barrier to entry is a little bit higher. But that's why question number two is there. Yeah, and you get to learn in single family too, right? Like I probably still, as my first investment, wouldn't be throwing out 50K to 100K into a passive investment because I, I didn't know real estate at that time. Now that I've done a number of different transactions and seen the full cycle of single family real estate, I feel a lot more comfortable. So to your point, if you're, if you're like, hey, $50,000, who has $50,000? A great place to start is in transactional real estate where you can find distressed assets, sell them off to investors, get a little bit of capital that you can go walk around with and then go find those multifamily deals. So yeah, absolutely. And, and that comes down to question three is, um, you know, where's your time and energy best spent? And I, I gave the example of, you know, I've talked to a doctor that is, you know, excited about 300 bucks a door on a house when he could, you know, add, you know, 10x that by just focusing more on his business and investing passively on the side. Um, so, you know, understand where's your time best spent. If you're a busy professional and you've got a growing family and, you know, you don't have a lot of time to dedicate to uh, building a single family portfolio, you should probably look at passively investing in multifamily. And I say that because you can still get all the benefits of real estate, you still get the cash flow, you still get the great returns, you're diversifying away from the stock market, and you get incredible tax benefits. But it doesn't take any time and effort after um, your initial investment, right? I mean, the, the big investment there is figuring out who you're going to invest with, because, uh, you know, 90% of your risk in that business is going to come from the people that you invest with. It's not you know, there's not a lot of problems. <laughs> like multifamily's been around forever. It's not going anywhere. In fact, it's it's continuing to grow. Um, you know, due to major demographic shifts. The problem is people invest with the wrong people. So after you do that research and you put in the effort there, there's really not a, a lot of effort um, or energy spent on that, and you're still going to generate those great returns. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I don't know if you've ever read The Hands Off Investor by Brian Burt. I think it is. He, anyways, if you haven't, and if anybody hasn't, I'm in the middle of reading it right now, and it talks about how to syndicate deals and what a GP is and an LP and all that. But the thing he talks about is how do you qualify a sponsor before you give their money up? It's one of the better books I think I've read on real estate in a very long time. So, all right, we're going through this, and we've decided that, first of all, we need to decide if we want to be an equity investor. We've decided what our monthly cash flow goals are and how we're going to get there. Then we're looking at our, our bank account and saying, how much liquid capital do we have to invest? And then deciding that versus how much time do we want to invest? What's next? What's the next question we need to be asking ourselves? Yeah, so the next one is going to be, how much control do you want over your real estate investments? Um, so you may check all the boxes, you know, higher net worth, you have liquid capital able to invest, um, and you don't have a lot of time. So you would you know, tend to think that you'd fit the bill for a passive investor. Um, 
but there is some people who want to have a lot of control under over your investment. And understand when you passively invest in a multifamily syndication, you're trusting your funds to the professionals who are in charge of that. Um, they make the decisions, they have the business plan, they have the track record and the experience to make those decisions. And it's kind of, you know, your hands are off the wheel at that point. So you do have to trust those people. And you made a great point about, um, you know, a list of questions that, uh, that you need to be asking your sponsors to vet your sponsors. I'm really big on that. I have a list of 20 questions that I ask every sponsor. Um, you can reach out to me and I'm happy to, to provide you with that list so that you know what questions you should be asking. Um, but really, when it comes to, to, you know, how much control do you want to have over this, I always kind of tie back um, passively investing in multifamily to uh, think of it as like an airliner, right? So um, there's pilots and there's passengers, and you can be a passenger on the airplane, and, um, you know, a trained professional pilot is going to get you, you're both going to the same destination, right? You know, the same destination is financial freedom in this instance, um, only the passengers can sit back and relax and cruise towards their destination while the pilot, um, you know, who's gone through thousands of hours of training and has logged the time and everything like that actually flies the airplane. So some people, you know, they enjoy flying, they wanna be in control. Um, and so they don't really fit the bill for pa investing passively. Um, so that comes back to if you are higher net worth, if you do have, um, you know, liquid capital uh, available to invest, perhaps you should look at being active on multifamily, you know, taking um, an active role like I've done after making several passive investments, I decided to start taking an active role. Um, you know, that may be better suited towards your, your goals and situation and everything like that. So that's why I ask uh, question number four, um, because some people just, it won't fit um, if they wanna have a lot of control over it. You do have control over what investments and what teams you invest with. Um, but ultimately, after you you wire funds into a particular um, offering, um, it's pretty hands off after that. Yeah, I love that airplane analogy um, because you know when I'm riding on my Southwest flight out to who knows where, uh, and there's turbulence in the air or whatever, the pilot will get a ding and he'll know to or she'll know to kind of avoid that and go take a different route and. I'm just in the back on my free Wi-Fi, eat my pretzels, and, and it's all good for me. So that's a fantastic analogy. All right, so I've, I've decided I've got enough capital that my time is best suited at my W-2 or taking care of my family or things like that. I've decided that I want to release some control and allow other people to operate and handle the calls and the maintenance and the asset and things like that. What would be next? Yeah, so the fifth step in the six-part framework is, you know, really being honest with yourself about what is an acceptable return on your investment. Um, again, it comes down to whether or not you're going to be a good fit to be a passive investor or an active investor in multifamily real estate. Um, you know, understand that a typical multifamily, you know, if you are in a good market with a good sponsor who has a track record, um, you know, you're going to be looking at about nine to 13% cash on cash um, returns annually. And that means, you know, if you invested $100,000, you would make $10,000 per year in cash flow uh, at a 10% cash on cash return. So that's what the term cash on cash means. Um, and then there is an equity multiple that comes at the end of the hold period that is, um, you know, typically adds a couple more percentage points. So, you know, you're going to be in that 15 to 20% total return range over the, over the hold period. Um, so, you know, understand that this isn't a get rich quick scheme. This is about building long term stable wealth over time. Um, you know, I know the stock market returns 9% on average, but some years it's negative 30 and some years it's 27% up, right? So um, this is more about stability. And if you're okay, uh, and being truly honest with yourself, if you're okay with a 15 to 20% return on your money over a long term investment, um, then this is going to be right for you. If you want more speculative, you know, if you're okay taking higher risk, um, you know, there's certainly room for that in, in people's portfolios. This is not the right asset for that. Um, but, you know, certainly um, that's what this question is all about is just making sure that you have realistic expectations about what your returns would be as a passive investor. Yeah. And so two things, again, I'm on my two kick today. Um, when you say nine to 13% cash on cash return, and then when you sell that property, you're going to also sell it 
for more than you bought it for because you have a good operator that you invested with, et cetera. Let's say your returns are 20%. 20% a year for five years is doubling your money. Like, so I, I think, you know, real estate is a get rich slow um, methodology to wealth accumulation, but doubling your money every five years is not a bad return. So I'll give you a, a, an example to kind of like bear that against. Uh, if you place a uh, equity, you buy Tesla for instance, and it goes up 100% in a year, and the next year it goes down 50%. So you buy a Tesla for $100,000, it goes to $200,000 after year one. If it goes down 50% next year, you're back at $100,000. However, when you go to the bank or your Wall Street broker, they're going to say, hey, Tesla over the past two years has a 50% average return, but you're back at $100,000. You're still even. So I think the way that we are trained to look at finances in the stock market, again, I'm not hating on the stock market. I think it has a play in everybody's portfolio is wrong though. And people need to be asking additional questions on, is this 9%, is this average or is this guaranteed every, every year that I'm gonna get nine and how steady is that? All right, so I've decided, hey, Colin, I'm interested. I've got enough cash. I've, I've decided that you're the right sponsor or that this person's the right sponsor and nine to 13% are doubling my money in, 15, in five years sounds phenomenal. What's my last question? What's the last step of the process? So the last question is, are you comfortable investing in longer term projects? So um, again, coming back to that doubling your money in five years, um, you know, that's kind of the, the, that would be a lower term um, project of ours. Five years is about as short of a term as we typically see. Uh, normally it's in the five to seven year range. So understand that this isn't a stock investment that you can simply, you know, sell at the click of a button on E-Trade and have access to your money. These are long-term illiquid investments, but, you know, understand that you do get a premium on your uh, return, right? I mean, the average stock uh, market investment over the last hundred years is like eight or 9%. And here we are talking about 15 to 20%. So, you know, because of that illiquidity, you do get a premium on your return. And it's not really a big deal for me because these are very long-term investments for me. And, you know, I'm using capital that I don't need immediate access to. Um, so I want to get the highest return possible on my money that is going to be in these long-term um, investments anyway. So I have no problem with, you know, a five to seven year investment term. However, every individual is different. So that's why the, the final question in, in this six part series is, you know, are you comfortable with that longer term hold? Yeah, five to seven years might seem like a long time for a lot of our listeners, especially since we live in the age that we do where everything's at your fingertips. That's actually a positive thing for a lot of people that I talk to. And here's why is because with multifamily and with real estate, you're not getting someone knocking on your door, buzzing on your phone, adding notifications onto your to-do list every day on what your asset is doing. So when I was going through March of 2020, every single day, every single hour, I was just watching my equity state go down and down and down and down. And that did a lot of things for me mentally. The thing I did not look at is I didn't jump on to, like to your point, there's no Zillow for multifamily. I didn't jump onto Zillow and see what my single family prices and, and things like that were doing. So sometimes a set it and forget it and get it out of your view is the best thing you can do with your money. I'm not saying you shouldn't be cautious with your money or watch your money, but not knowing day by day, second by second, what that is doing can do a lot for you mentally. And it can also protect you from the downsides of every human has. So I love that. Is there anything else you wanted to add to that six step or anything else that we should be thinking about? No, I think you nailed it there. And, and you know, how many of us have been guilty? I know I have with my investments of the, in the past of trying to time the market. Um, so with this, you know, the longer term investment, yeah, you're not going to time the market. It's all about perceived volatility. You can get into E-Trade and see that your one stock is down 26% over the last couple of months. And you're going to have a knee-jerk reaction and not think about the long-term goals that you thought about when you first invested in that and sell it when it's too low and buy back in when it's too high. Like I've been so guilty of that over time. So this really helps me as an investor not be emotional about it. Um, like you said, I can't go in and, and um, 
see what the valuation on my property is. I can calculate it um, based off monthly cash flow, but at the same time, that's the beauty of multifamily uh, investing is it's based on cash flow. It's not based on um, you know market sentiment or single family houses where they're based on comps. You know what did Johnny and Susie's house down the road sell for? These are commercial multifamily businesses, and that's what you need to remember when you're investing in something like this, whether actively or passively. You are buying a, a small business, and there is profit. There is, or uh, sorry, there's uh, income, there's expenses, and there's profits. And that's where you know the cash flow component comes from. That nine to thirteen percent cash on cash return is a split of profits. You know, after we've paid our mortgage and expenses and taxes, insurance, everything like that, we split the profits. Um, amongst the investors in the deal. And then at the end of the day, again, since the value of your property is based on the income that that property generates, we have proven business plans where we go in and we increase income, we decrease expenses. And at the end of the day, that property is worth more money to the next buyer um, based on a multiple of that, that cash flow or that uh, net operated income is really what it's based on uh, NOI. And um, so that's where kind of the extra boost in your returns come from, from, you know, nine to 13% to that 15 to 20% um, return. And again, these are windows. I'm not here to solicit or talk about any deal in particular. These are general numbers that as a passive investor, first and foremost, I want to make sure that the numbers um, are at least fitting into that kind of category. And, um, you know, from there, it's all about vetting your sponsors and everything like that. Yeah, that that analogy of you're buying a small business is is beautiful. It's wonderful, right? When you're buying a single family home, you're, you're you can you can manipulate the cash flow around by reducing expenses, managing it yourself, increasing rent, and things like that. But ultimately, when you go to sell that, people are gonna look at the comps. They're gonna look at what did the house next door sell for, and I'm not gonna pay any more than that. And even as a seasoned real estate investor, as I would consider myself being, I'm the same way because I am a buyer of single family homes. Whereas when you're buying multifamily, every dollar you increase in profit, you can actually increase your selling price. Very, very similar to those who uh, buy and sell businesses. If they can squeeze out extra profit, they can usually sell it for a higher price for one reason or another. So fantastic analogy there. Well, there's a lot we didn't even get into from tax benefits to how you decide a good market to different creative ways that you all raise your revenue, not only raising rents, but things like covered parking and Wi-Fi and laundromats and things like that, that I hope that we can uh, have you back on at some point and go over. But with that, I, I do want to go into our final segment of the show here. And um, it's the same five questions we ask everyone. First and foremost, what's your favorite book? Um, so I couldn't choose between my two favorite books. Number one would be uh, Never Split the Difference with Chris Voss. Um, it's, you know, he is a FBI hostage negotiator and he, you know, basically lays out the rules of, of how you properly and effectively negotiate. Um, incredible book. Definitely. It's super entertaining. He tells a lot of stories about, you know, high stakes uh, um, hostage negotiations and how it relates back to, you know, everyday business negotiations. Um, and then the other one would be uh, Big Shifts Ahead by Chris Porter. Really great job of documenting, um, you know, and highlighting the importance of paying attention to demographics. You know, like I said, everything that I do is a very long-term investment. I'm looking at, you know, the 30 to 50 year range. So I need to be paying attention to what demographic shifts are coming down the road. I think that book does a great job explaining, um, you know, it, it basically, it doesn't break it down into, you know, baby boomer, Gen Z, but, you know, he gets a lot more granular um, because, you know, take millennials, for instance, um, I'm considered a millennial, but I didn't have, you know, a cell phone or internet until I was well into uh, high school, right? So, um, whereas there's also people that are considered millennials that had a cell phone when they were six and, you know, had the internet on their cell phone when they were six. And, and that is, two completely different people, right? Um, so he does a really great job of kind of getting more granular than the big generational shifts and um, you know what's going to drive economies uh, and demographics going forward. I've actually never read that book, but I've heard phenomenal things on it and I've got to read it. Um, never Split the Difference, more than just a business negotiation book. We are always negotiating, whether it's with our spouses, 
with our kids, with business deals, or with ourselves. And it's a phenomenal book to kind of walk you through uh, some different tactics you can use there. Um, I believe that we are the habits that we do every single day. So I preach from the high heavens that everybody should do something every single day that humbles them. What is something that you do every day? Well, um, I have a four-month-old right now, so I change diapers every day. But I make it a point, um, I read before bed every night. Um, sometimes it's for, you know, pleasure, reading books that are kind of nonfiction, um, uh, fun to read type things. And then other times it is self-improvement, um, never split the difference, big shifts ahead. Um, Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz is, a, is another great book. Um, so those type of books, you know, I like to mix it up. And that's something I do every day. I love it. The person you're going to be in the future is dependent on the people you meet and the books you read. So love it. Um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? So I think it really involves getting out of your comfort zone. Um, you know, us as humans, we are kind of wired to try to stay as comfortable as possible. But um, there's a lot of tension there because that also doesn't really help you grow as a human. And really growth is one of the most rewarding things that you can do. Um, and I'm not talking just financially. I mean, you know, the cars, the, uh, the boats, the big house, that's all the carrot at the end of the stick. The, the real, um, and you talk to people that are super successful and they have all those things. It's not the things that they're proud of. It's the person they had to become to uh, you know, get to where they wanted to go. And that's the true reward. So you know, getting out of your comfort zone um, and really taking action, I think is the best advice I ever got. I'm gonna steal some Chris Voss. That's right. It's not, the, <laughs> it's not the thing you get at the end, it's the person you become along the way that matters the most. I love it. Um, what's the thing that you're most proud of in your life beyond your wife and your kids, which I'm sure that, that, that would rank up there. Uh, what's the thing that you're most proud of in your life? I think I'm most proud of, um, you know, what I've done over the last couple of years, the, the business I've built, the cash flow, um, the real estate portfolio. You know, I'm a general partner on approaching 600 units right now. Um, and then I'm passively investing in another, passively invested in another about 560. Um, and that is, you know, above and beyond my W-2 job. I'm a full-time father. I'm a full-time W-2 employee. And at the same time, I've built up this business um, and, and had a lot of success on the side. And, um, you know, that to me is, is kind of um, what I'm most proud of is that I didn't stay complacent and fall back into kind of, you know, the W-2 mentality of, um, you know, I just need to focus on my one job and make sure I do that good and they'll take care of me. Because ultimately, uh, I won't speak for every company, but ultimately, um, the only person who's going to look out for you is you. Last question. If you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? This one is really tough. Um, I couldn't come up with one person like instantly coming to mind uh, would be Mark Cuban. I grew up in Dallas. Um, you know, he's a big member of the community there. He does some incredible things that, you know, he doesn't care if they make headlines or not. Um, so I'd love to just, you know, pick his brain um, over a bowl of ice cream. And, and um, you know, like you said, the, you are the um, result of the people that you surround yourself with. So I would love to, you know, talk with him and, and see, get a, a more of a read about his mindset and everything. Are you following what he's doing with the Delonte West right now, by the way? Is this the one where he was like a former NBA player that was homeless? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a prime example of what I'm talking about. Like it's, it's incredible. I mean, he brought the man into his home to help him out in the difficult situation and super, I mean, he's a controversial guy, but smart guy, sales guy. And uh, at the end of the day, like that's humans helping humans. And, and I'm very appreciative of that. And it's been, yeah. And maybe, maybe that's what I should, you know, redo my answer for that. What are you most proud of in your life? Um, you know, I am proud of the boxes I checked to, um, kind of break free from the boomer bust cycle. I now have enough passive income to cover all of my expenses should I lose my job. Um, and that's great. And we all kind of start with these somewhat selfish goals, right? You want to take care of your family, your finances, your income and everything like that. Um, but uh, you need to grow out of that. And that's 
honestly something that I'm very proud of is starting Rigs to Real Estate. Now I'm helping other oil and gas professionals get started in real estate um, in whatever capacity they can that fits their situation and goals and really getting rid of, uh, you know, putting the blinders on, giving them clarity and saying like, no, don't focus on step eight when you haven't done step one. Let's go through this in, in turn. And that's been super rewarding, just helping out other oil and gas professionals figure out this, um, you know, same passive income streams that, that I was able to figure out. Um, so that has been super rewarding, helping out, you know, others that way. Yeah. And I want to call that out. I mean, that is definitely something uh, you should be proud of and something I definitely look up to you for is the fact that, I mean, it's easy to to make a good income and to sit there and just take take that income and go buy nice houses and watches and things like that. But you, you really looked at it and said, how do I make sure that my family is protected financially and that we can move forward as a as a family, that's that's super inspiring. If if anybody wants to check you out and get more information from you, where would be the best place that we could send them? Yeah, so um, I'm very active on LinkedIn. You can find me, Colin Plackey, on LinkedIn. Um, somewhat less active on Facebook, but I still post things every now and then. Um, you can also go to rigstorealestate.com, and we have a podcast under the same name. Um, and you know you can go listen to what I'm doing over there, and and it is it is geared towards oil and gas professionals, um, but at the same time, we're solving problems of everyday life. And and coronavirus did help help. Um, it allowed other people to see that their income is not as uh, they can't be as dependent on it as they thought. So they need to be thinking of you know what can I do to smooth out potential future ups and downs with something that is a long-term investment, stable returns, um, solid tax benefits, everything like that. So those underlying principles will still um, remain you know, there, whether or not you're in the oil industry. Uh, that's just my message is crafted towards oil and gas professionals because that's who I love to help. That's who I love to work with. But any type of busy professional, um, you know, reach out to me. I'm happy to help you get started. And, and you know, let's help you put on the blinders, get some clarity and get started, take action. And that's what it's all about. Absolutely. I found it super valuable uh, as a salesperson, even though it talks a lot about oil and gas, I still pick out a lot of nuggets from that. So thank you for sharing that to the community. And I'd encourage anybody, regardless if you're in the oil and gas industry or in sales, or if you think you have a stable job to check it out, because there's a lot of great information on there. Colin, fantastic time. I enjoyed the conversation. I look forward to having you back on so we can explore some of the other things that we didn't get a chance to cover. Absolutely, Matt. Enjoyed it. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.